Hello, and welcome to ReFive Radio. I'm your host, Will Moyo. In partnership with Park Madison Partners, Real Estate Fund Intelligence is bringing you monthly discussions with some of the real estate industry's most innovative voices. On this month's show, Nancy Lachine, Park Madison's founder and managing partner, speaks with Anthony Malkin, chairman and CEO of Empire State Realty Trust, about real estate's impact on the environment, green retrofit strategies for real estate managers to consider, and how the real estate industry can contribute towards building a more sustainable future. Thank you, Will. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us. This is Nancy Lachine from Park Madison Partners, and I'm here on Zoom with Tony Malkin. The global pandemic, COVID-19, has dominated the headlines this year and has altered life and business for billions of people around the globe. It is perhaps the largest global mobilization against a common threat in human history. And yet, some of us believe that this threat pales in contrast to how global warming and climate change will be impacting our lives over the coming years if we don't make changes very soon. This may sound apocalyptic for some of our listeners, but perhaps COVID-19 is the wake-up call we need. Real estate buildings consume up to 40% of energy in the U.S., making them a major contributor to carbon emissions. And even as Washington retreats from efforts to tackle climate change, some local and state regulators are trying to fill the void, such as New York City, with the Climate Mobilization Act, or Local Law 97. And we're seeing institutional investors and their managers, which is, of course, our business, start to implement stringent ESG programs with a focus on environmental sustainability. We now regularly address this with all kinds of investors looking to make commitments to funds. And it's a really important issue for state pension plans, foundations, sovereigns, and corporate investors. We have with us a very special guest, Tony Malkin. Tony is chairman and CEO of Empire State Realty Trust and is one of the world's leading advocates on sustainable building policy. Tony has been instrumental in passing energy legislation at the federal and city level. He chairs committees on sustainable policy at the Real Estate Roundtable and ULI. And Tony sits on New York City's Climate Mobilization Advisory Board and perhaps is best known for leading a groundbreaking green retrofit of the Empire State Building. Tony, you have three qualities that I have long admired. You're passionate about these issues, and you've made yourself an expert about how the real estate industry can become more sustainable. And you are also pragmatic by having demonstrated how being sustainable is healthy for the bottom line. You are a real-time example of doing well by doing good. Tony, welcome to the program. Thanks very much, Nancy. So, Tony, you've been, as I said, one of the most effective champions of this cause and have helped focus national and local attention on these issues. Share with us a little bit about how your interest in sustainability first developed. What was the spark and how did you initially set about pursuing it? I'll have to tell you that uh, the greatest degree of credit initially goes to my wife, who was early on a, a board member, a trustee of the Natural Resources Defense Council. After uh, 23 years on that board, she has stepped out and she's now an honorary trustee. 
And early on, I became very interested in this concept of, of greening. Uh, and over time, uh, what I actually did is I recognized that the power is really not so much in what's greening, uh, which I like to refer to as greenwashing. Uh, and it's more about uh, tangible progress, which can be made in a way that measures investment against return and actually gets into the ability to monitor and verify that the actual progress that you make towards an objective of making lower impact. I will just tell you that from my perspective, this is a very complex subject, uh, which can be made far more simple. And I really look forward to the opportunity to chat with you over the next uh, little bit, try to in uh, inform people about you know, what matters, what doesn't matter, uh, who really deserves to be uh, uh, recognized, and, and what are the standards which people should use to determine whether or not there's real and effective uh, progress being made. So why don't we start with sort of the big picture question, which is why should real estate owners care about sustainability? You know, why should people who have been listening to this podcast keep listening? Why does it matter? The, the, the energy consumed by buildings is actually closer to 75, 80%. And it's absolutely proven that the, the carbon output, the energy consumed, the environmental impact per person is far less in an urban environment than in an exurban or rural environment. So as we get to greater densification around the world, uh, cities become a primary opportunity uh, to reduce energy consumption. Uh, they already do that by their very nature uh, because the transportation costs are lower, all sorts of costs that are spread out are, are lower. Vertical buildings are less expensive to heat and cool than, than spread out buildings. The, the less roof you have per person, the more efficient a building is, a structure is. So people should really care because when you want to make change, you really want to go after the low-hanging fruit. And in, when it comes to energy efficiency and sustainability in the existing built environment, uh, working with buildings in cities, it, in many cases, you're picking fruit up off the ground. You're not even getting the low-hanging fruit. So is the focus really here on, um and there's so many places that you just went like, thinking about densification and urban planning and, you know, transportation and electric cars and what impact that will have. And so there are lots of places we could go, but I'll, um, focusing really on, you know, you talked about greenwashing, which is, you know, just a great expression. You're not a big fan of LEED certification, as I understand it either. What is it that's the most important aspect for real estate owners to be thinking about? Is it really just energy efficiency or something else? So the, 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 the thing that I would say is that investors really need to understand a couple of things. One, this is coming. And as I, from my role as the chair of the Sustainability Policy Advisory Committee of the Real Estate Roundtable, I can tell you, I don't care if it's Washington, D.C., Los Angeles, San Francisco, Chicago, Austin, Houston, everybody is coming to a, has come to a point where this is going to happen. So it's coming down the pike. Everyone needs to be aware and be ready. No investors are paying attention to the right markers. The people who get the most credit and win the awards for sustainability of the year, if you will, uh, at, the, at NAREIT, 
and, and other places are the people who put together the nicest presentations, not necessarily the people who do the best work. And so there are uh, all sorts of people out there who will say, well, LEAD, LEAD is a monitorable and verifiable uh, mandate. Uh, you have to collect points against specific guidelines, and if you get those points, you get the award. But when you look at the points, a lot of them are very soft and fuzzy. Number one, bike racks, showers, plant walls, water features in building lobbies. You get points for all these things. And is that really going to change the world? It's not going to change the world. I don't care what you say. Bike racks save in cars and reduce emissions from transportation. In cities, transportation is below 5% output of, of uh, carbon. So it's nice to look at all those things, number one. Number two, LEED is primarily a new building phenomenon. Uh, very, very few people use the LEED existing building mandates. Why? It's very expensive. Uh, number three, LEED is really a rich person's tool, right? If you can afford it, you do it. A water feature that you put on the wall of the building, which then, by the way, requires chlorine because they all develop algae, so then you're breathing in chlorine as you go through this, this building and the chlorine is in the air and killing the plants on the plant wall. I mean, it's all sorts of gobbledygook. However, people look at that as a mandate. The, the, the fourth thing I would point out is lead is inherently a new building metric. New buildings are the most wasteful use of resources there are. The most efficient and best use of resource is to recondition existing building stock to serve a purpose and to be energy efficient. Right? Now, Gresby, which is another broadly monitored report, started by Nils Cook, uh, and then sold by Nils to lead, sold to the U.S. Green Building Council, which is amazing that a not-for-profit can buy another not-for-profit. Um, similarly, very loosey-goosey. Now, I will say that we have finally abdicated, and our senior vice president of energy and sustainability has, Tony, has said, Tony, if we don't do these, we're not going to get the credit because that's what the different investor groups give credit for. I'd like to suggest that what people really need to focus on is what reduces energy consumption, what improves indoor environmental quality, what reduces waste, what recycles and repurposes waste. By the way, waste is not just plastic and glass and paper. Waste is also compostable. Waste is also construction debris. The de demolition of a building, the demolition of an interior space for the rebuild for a new tenant. You know, these are the metrics that actually make a difference. Lead, GRESB, the major metrics which measure, do not touch on these factors at all. They don't do it. So I think it's important that we, we, we we broaden the conversation and we inform your readers, listeners, clients, people who pay attention to this, as to what really matters. So I look forward to delve into that a bit more as we go forward through our, our time today. 
So it sounds like your thoughts are that Local Law 97 will actually start measuring the things that really matter in terms of consumption and, and waste. Um, is that your view? And do you think that it is the most stringent law in the country right now? Do you, and you mentioned that you see it as other cities see it coming down the pike. What are the things, do you think it is going to measure those things that matter? Um, are the New York City building owners, the 50,000 or so buildings that have to be covered under it, um, are they prepared for it? And, um, and what are, what, what, you said it will also need some changes. So what are the things that, uh, that it will do? What are you hoping will come out of Local Law 97? Well, you know, it's, it's really very interesting. First of all, Local Law 97 is directionally absolutely the right place to go because it attacks energy consumption. Now, as I mentioned, waste is important. By the way, water use is important. Indoor air quality is important. Uh, but when it comes to the consumption of energy, this, this is the smartest, best thing uh, when it comes to energy is to focus on, 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 on what do we do finally to put in front of people if you don't reduce your energy consumption you will pay a fine. Now, remember, by the way, this has broad implications. Tenants consume 50 to 60% of all the energy in a commercial building. So mm -hmm. tenants also have a very significant role to play in this particular game, uh, number one. Number two, the problem with uh, Local Law 97 is that it doesn't really utilize the facts, they didn't utilize the facts when they went forward. So they, they limited the area in which, for instance, clean power can be generated. They limited the area in which clean power can be delivered. Uh, the, the grid in New York State that, that ultimately ends up in New York City is extremely uh, congested. The concept that the, the city council people and the mayor then think that, okay, well, we're going to end up putting solar on the sides of buildings and that's going to generate energy. And that's all a lot of gobbledygook. It doesn't make any sense. The first thing that we do is we sort out not on the energy that's generated cleanly. We focus on the energy which is not generated. Instead of the megawatt, we focus on the negawatt, the energy which is not consumed. So the megawatt, until you've produced all of the megawatts, that's N-E-G-A-W-A-T-T-S, you shouldn't produce a megawatt. When you reach the crossover at which uh, it costs the same to save uh, a, 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 a megawatt as it does to generate a megawatt, that's when you start to produce power, number one. Number two, Local Law 97, rather crazily, uh, is a, uh, an electrification bill, essentially. There is not a single word in Local Law 97 about energy efficiency. Now, intuitively, what you say is, well, if you consume less energy, you'll produce less carbon. But Local Law 97 really was written around the fight between the ongoing fight between the mayor and the city council of New York City and the governor of New York. The governor of New York said, we will make the New York state energy grid clean 
by 2050, I guess is the date, but a great, the greatest accomplishment required by 2030. To which New York City said, okay, well then we'll just make everything in New York City electric. So there's a greenhouse coefficient, it's called the carbon gas coefficient, or carbon greenhouse gas coefficient for every form of power generated. That is what's set forth in Local Law 97. There is a greenhouse gas coefficient rating for centralized steam, for heat produced by oil, by natural gas. There's a greenhouse gas coefficient for nuclear, hydro, solar, wind. And, 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 and the goal here is that we're going to electrify everything. Well, that's not going to work because the grid is already congested. What we first have to do is to save energy, reduce energy consumption, mm -hmm. so that the amount of energy which ultimately needs to be produced and distributed cleanly is reduced. So it, 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 is a, it is a very involved process. Are people ready for this? No, they're not. <laughs> they're really not. A few people have begun to pay attention, but a very few. No investor today, not one I have heard of in the last five years, investing in New York City, four years, three years, two years, one year, this year, has contemplated the cost of a fine for greenhouse gas output due to energy consumption in the building which she or he is buying. Not one. Foreign, domestic. None of your clients who's invested has said, okay, well, what is the underwriting? What does it say about the fines due to local law 97? Zero. Nobody's thinking about it. I couldn't agree with you more. I haven't heard anyone talking about that. You made you alluded earlier to the fact that this was implemented at kind of the top of the market when New York was doing so very well. Um, initial was passed and will be implemented as we're moving, you know, into this, as we are in this recession and trying to get through the difficult uh, aftermath of what COVID's done to New York City. Um, and the question that I hear every day from investors and, and um, managers is, won't, uh, you know, the, the implications on costs for New York City on uh, wealthy people moving out, the increased tax requirements that will be likely imposed as, as, we, as we need to bridge some of these uh, budget gaps. Um, will make New York City more expensive and less competitive. A little bit of the blue versus red states, but New York and San Francisco in particular seem to have been hard hit. So um, won't this, I'll have to, ask, you know, this is a question on everybody's mind, won't this law compound that problem and make New York City so, even more expensive? Let's, so so let's, let's talk a little more about energy efficiency. Let's talk about what we have actually done and what we do. And I'd also like to spend some time in indoor environmental quality, because actually the two of them are, are actually quite linked uh, for reasons that I'll, I'll discuss. Uh, first of all, um, let's not forget that under this mayor, Mayor de Blasio, tens of thousands of new city employees have been added, which adds salary, health care costs, and the like. The budget has gone up by more than 20% since he's been mayor. So there's a lot of fat to be trimmed from Mayor de Blasio's budgets. Now, he has a, a thing where in order to make the homeless situation 
uh, more obvious, his thought is, let's bring the homeless to all these neighborhoods where everyone can see them. In order to say, well, we need to be able to borrow more money from the state, he just says, well, let's stop picking up the trash. That this is a, a this is a strange world in which we live. That this world will be over. And and I want to focus on New York City. That the fact of the matter is, um, what we will see is working class people. That means anywhere from lower class to lower middle class, middle class. I don't care if they're white, black, Latino, Asian, brown, whatever. All have the same goals. Safety, cleanliness, quality of life. So I think we will see, uh, it would be, be very clear, I think that pragmatics will win in the next election. So these high-minded ideas are great when you have money and, and people have the opportunity to protest and complain or whatever. People need jobs and people need to pay the rent and people need to feed their families. They're focused on get back to work. So, and we see this towards the top of every cycle. That's just the nature of things, number one. Number two, there's not a thing we have done in the energy efficiency moves, not just at the Empire State Building, throughout our portfolio, which hasn't paid for itself within five years, not one thing. So I say, you know, some of it, three years. So I say the fruit is, is sitting on the ground. It's not even low hanging. So the, the, the comment that I would make is that you know, we reduce the energy uh, consumption in the Empire State Building, we targeted 38%. It's more at this point about 45%. Through a comprehensive set of measures, very low tech, all done locally, job creating, can import a, a building energy efficiency retrofit. Uh, and, uh, and very simple things. We, uh, we rebuilt 6,514 windows on site, set up a 5,000 square foot glass factory within the building. And we took thermopane windows, which are about 18, 19 years old, depending upon this big building. It took us over a year to install them all. Took them out, broke them apart, cleaned them, put in a mylar sheet, resealed them with a Krypton argon gas vacuum filled inert gas interior, reused 96% of the original glass and frames, reinstalled them in the building, and increased their ability to block heat cold transfer by 400%. We put an insulation between the radiators and the exterior walls. First thing we did is we dealt with the building envelope. We reduced the need to cool in the summer and heat in the winter by increasing the barrier. Number one. Number two, we put in the largest wireless building energy management system in the world. What does it do? It has individually controlled zones, which go to individually motor-operated digital controls for louvers, which feed back to the central plant demand for heating and cooling, which automatically, in the aggregate, increases and reduces the speeds, the fans and pumps in the building, throughout the building, both in our cooling tower and actually in move air, the pumps that move chilled or heated water through the building. The building is operates based on demand. Most buildings, someone comes in in the morning, turns them on, and they're on. That's part two. Part three, we actually retrofitted, we didn't have to replace, even though we went to a higher density of occupancy of users in the building, and we began to air condition bathrooms and hallways that had never been air conditioned before. 
we reduced the total cooling load and we made our cooling plant more efficient with retrofits. We installed all these digital controls. There are eight things overall. Not one of them took up more than 20% of the savings that were created. There's no silver bullet. We call it silver buckshot. By the way, we didn't patent this. We didn't copyright it. We made it all available on the internet, every single thing that we have done. The second thing we did is we created certain basic premise for energy efficient tenant installations. And that program is the basis for the Better Buildings Initiative, which is a bill that we initiated uh, at uh, the, the Real Estate Roundtable, which created a, a new metric of Energy Star for tenants. There were, before, it was only Energy Star for buildings. Well, as it turns out, the Department of Energy and the Environmental Protection Agency, which both created the uh, Energy Star program and administered the Energy Star program, said, we're not authorized by Congress to do a tenant model. So I realized, I said, oh, so we have to get a bill passed. They said, yes. So it started off with Michael Bennett in Colorado proposing it as an amendment to a bill that was put forward by Gene Shaheen and, 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 and Senator Portman. We got this bill passed 99 to 0 in the U.S. Senate and was passed in the House, 99 to 0, because it was obvious, job-creating, cost-saving, profit-enhancing, national security-supporting, and now this year, it takes a long time for bills to get actually effective. Remember, bills get written, the rules get made, and the programs get rolled out. Right now, starting October 13th, broadly stated, anybody can apply for the Energy Star for Tenants program. The basis for the Energy Star for Tenants program is the work that we started at Empire State Realty Trust on how to design and build energy-efficient tenant spaces, which we then broke out into case studies through at a, at, a, at, a, at, a, at a group that my wife and I set up at the Natural Resources Defense Council that explained the entire thing, and then we gifted the entire thing with an endowment to the Urban Land Institute. It's called the Tenant Energy Optimization Program. It's free. It's not copyrighted. It's not patented. There are lessons on how brokers, engineers, architects, tenants, building operators, everybody how to work it. And again, this is so, yeah, we do this, I do this stuff to make money and to differentiate, but then we give it away. So open you know, my, source. Yes. So I just like to say these are these are tangible steps that anybody can take, right? Right now we're in the midst of a project right now with the New York State Energy Research Development. Uh, authority. So when you pay a bill in New York City, a portion of that bill is a tax. It's called an on-bill tax, which goes into a sinking fund for New York State, for New York State to put out to reduce energy consumption. NYSERDA, as it's called, needs recognizes the importance of re the reduction of energy consumption for the benefit of reduced strain on the grid and reduced amount of clean power that has to be generated to turn the grid, the, the grid clean. So they want to know what are the best policies, what are the best practices, what are the best services, what are the best products for us to support for people and help fund for people to put in their buildings. So we went to NYSERDA and said, look, why don't we put together a group of building owners with a variety of different building types 
and we'll run this program for you. We'll do the research. We'll implement it in our own buildings. So we put together a group that includes Vernado, Heinz, Durst, and ourselves, and we're actually doing this program with and for NYSERDA right now. It's all captained by our Senior Vice President of Energy and Sustainability. By the way, this doesn't show up anywhere. We're, we are going to do a better job in our proxy and in our, in our, in our statements on, on, on ESG to highlight this stuff. I just didn't believe in subscribing to any of these goofy metrics that people want to put out there because I don't believe in them. I don't believe in the people who put them together, and I don't believe in, in, in what they are. However, she's convinced me that that's what we should do, so we will. But the point I'd like to make is these are all tangible things which you can do. And, and we are really, we're the leaders in this. The head of the PSC in New York State used to run the center that my wife and I set up at the Natural Resource Defense Council. The person at NYSERDA who's running the program through which we and Durst and Heinz and Vornado are working on this version 2.0 of energy efficiency used to work at the center that my wife and I set up at the Natural Resources Defense Council. You know, it's, it's, we're like a virus. We spread. Which is crazy because you also probably have one of the oldest, I mean, 1931, the yeah, entire state yeah, building. You have an older oldest. portfolio. We have the oldest one. I have a joke about that with Douglas Durst. Douglas Durst, when we, you know, Bryant Park, when Bryant Park is lead platinum, and it's an energy hog. It just consumes a tremendous amount of energy. It's one of the highest uh, per square foot in New York City, by the way, the way Bank of America built out their space, et cetera, whatever. So I made this comment. I said, LEED is terrible. Platinum LEED, one Bryant Park is Platinum LEED. It's one of the highest energy consumption buildings in New York City. Empire State Building is one of the lowest. Douglas Durr said, ah, it's just because his building is empty. And of course, we are in the middle of redeveloping. Well, now we're not empty. We're 95% leased uh, and very high density. LinkedIn, Cody, FDIC, all, you know, we've redeveloped the entire building. And so Douglas, uh, we went to lunch one day and he handed me a deck of playing cards from the 1930s, and on one, it's two decks side by side, and one has uh, images of, of the Statue of Liberty, and the other is images of the Empire State Building. It's an, an antique, a collector's thing, and he gave me this gift wrap back, and he said, I, 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 I just thought this might help make up for that. I'm like, Douglas, I got no problem with you, man. You're, you're <laughs> so anyway. Well, I do remember during Hurricane Sandy, our office used to be across the street from one Bryant Park, and they were, just about the only building around that had uh, lights and power. So I think they were their oh, own plant. We had lights and power at the Empire State Building in our portfolio as well. You know, resiliency matters. Yeah. By the way, height above uh, flood stage matters uh, in Manhattan. But anyway. Right. I right. want to make sure we cover what else you want to talk I, about here. Let's get I, to I, indoor I, quality. Yeah, well, before we get there, though, I just want to ask in terms of cost, you talked about what you did, of course, at the Empire State Building. Um, have you seen, I mean, clearly you've made it clear there's three, five-year paybacks on, on much of the savings, but you still have to find the money to pay for it to begin with. And so there are plenty of owners out there who will argue that they don't have that money, especially with older buildings. Um, how Have you seen any innovative means of financing these improvements, or are there any uh, moves to foot to do that? That is, that is such a load of hooey, by the way, Okay. These are, these are financeable in their own right, number one. Number two, you integrate them into what you, one of the reasons they're so inexpensive is you design integrate. You look at the life cycle of the building going forward. 
every system which you will end up replacing, you, you focus on how you will replace it and how you'll replace it in a way that integrates with overall energy efficiency as it goes forward. These are expenditures you're going to make anyway. You know, the incremental increase in cost for us at the Empire State Building to integrate energy efficiency into our overall redevelopment was less than, less than 5% of the total cost. You're doing a lot of the things that you do anyway. You do them differently. This, the guru who taught us all this is Amory Lovins of the Rocky Mountain Institute. And Amory, Amory Lovins is basically a rocket scientist. He's brilliant. But a very simple thing. You know, by, by spending money in the right way, on the right things, in the right order, it costs less. You don't redo the building and say, okay, now let's make it energy efficient. Every single thing you do is part of the energy efficiency mm -hmm. program. Number two, the number one issue is the short-termism of the people in whom your clients invest money and for whom you raise money. They say they buy a property with a tremendous amount, and the, the game plan has been you buy a property with a tremendous amount of debt, you're going to operate it for a period of time, put in a new lobby, some new elevator cabs, release it, sell it, make 85, 90% of your money on the sale. Return the money to your investors, raise another fund, rinse and repeat. And the fact of the matter is they look at it and say, we won't own it when this bill comes to pass. We won't own it when the cost is described. Why should we invest in it now? It's not our, it's not our problem. So, 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 the, so the issue really is, by the way, there are innovative things like PACE financing, which allows for financing through real estate tax towards debts. You don't even need that. You don't even need that. You can actually get green bonds. You can get, uh, uh, you, you can get uh, borrowing against energy savings and stuff. You, you cannot finance LEED or GRESP because they don't produce the savings. They just cost money. With, there's certainly a substantial part of the business that is, uh, you know, buy, fix, sell. But there's also 50, 60 percent of most institutional portfolios are in core properties, and they are looking to hold those properties for the long term, um, you know, generationally even, whether it's in open end funds or separate accounts. So, um, so I do think, and, and this is this has become a, an important issue for people. I do think that so, there's so I would I would suggest I would suggest that uh, that if you've got a capital stack. that allows you to invest in your buildings, you have a capital stack that allows you to invest in energy efficiency. Mm -hmm. As I said, it's just you, you, you spend money on things which have ended their useful life anyway. I'll give you one last little piece here. Let's say you buy a Hummer. Remember that big gas guzzler, right? And you, and you, feel, like a, you feel like a complete jerk you know, your, your partner ridicules you, your neighbors ridicule you, your, your, your children and nieces and grandchildren, and everybody makes fun of you. Well, if you turn around and say, okay, the heck with that, you shoot the Hummer and you go buy a Prius. That's incredibly wasteful because the energy that went into building that thing in the first place needs to be amortized over time. Hence, the most expensive thing you can do is build a new building. Hmm. Even more expensive, tear down an existing building to build a new building. 
The least energy efficient building you can possibly build is a glass building. Ryan Park's glass building. One Vanderbilt is a glass building. Hudson Yards is a glass building. They can never be energy efficient. They can be, but not economically, because to achieve the same heat cold transfer resistance in a building envelope that you get with mass and glass, just out of glass, the costs are extraordinarily prohibitive to build that thick, triple glazed, krypton argon gas, mylar sheeted on the entire outside of the building. By the way, not only that, it's bigger, it's heavier, the building itself has to weigh more. You need more steel, you need more concrete. So, so you know, when you look at this, but <laughs> I say I didn't know that. If there's one thing I hope people take away from this podcast, that's that's an incredible you know, statement. And it's crazy that we're building them. That's that's the state of the art. Most glamorous buildings today. So we're looking at a, a, at, a at a new construction uh, built to suit for a credit tenant uh, who's come to us on a piece of land we own. And, um, and, and you know, we, we've educated them, and they are absolutely motivated on this. And we're building a glass and mass building, which will be very energy efficient, which will reduce their costs of occupancy because they'll lease the entire building and they'll pay all the electricity costs. Um, we, you know, IEQ, as I think you've referred to it, is obviously a hot topic in the wake of COVID-19. So what advice would you offer to real estate owners about how to improve the air quality of their buildings? as quickly as possible. Okay, first of all, when we started this program of uh, energy efficiency to differentiate ourselves, we also started the issue about looking at healthy buildings. Healthy buildings uh, is a very, very big and important topic. Um, why was I focused on that? Um, I'm an asthmatic. Uh, I have bronchial issues. Uh, I can't go into a hotel room. If you walk into a newly redecorated hotel room and you know that smell, uh, a lot of people uh, misunderstand what that smell is. That smell is off-gassing petrochemicals, formaldehyde in highly varnished furniture that's been imported from China, wrapped in plastic and opened up it's artificial, uh, it, 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 it's, it's petrochemicals in the, in the carpet in your floor. It's wall coverings that are made from vinyl. It's, you go into the gym, a brand new gym, and all that rubber is just off-gassing all kinds of stuff. It's incredibly unhealthy. It's amazingly unhealthy. So we began to look at this whole issue of and became leaders in this issue of how do we build healthy environments. Joe Allen, who's a professor of Harvard, has now gotten a lot of attention. He's just published a book about healthy buildings. He's got a lab in which he works where in, in Rochester testing healthy buildings. The fact of the matter is we're entirely in on this program, and we have been in it for more than a decade. Okay? So... Uh, MERV 13 filters, ventilation, active bipolar ionization. This is the cocktail for a healthy indoor environment combined with 
and I'll break down what these things are, combined with recycled content carpet. Zero to low off-gassing wall coverings, paints, and adhesives. You can get recycled content rubber flooring in a gym, which is what we put in the 15,000 square foot tenants only fitness center at the Empire State Building. You walk in there day one, no fumes, none. Our office right here, where I'm sitting in the office, recycled content carpet and cork on the floors. We walked into this office day one, <clears throat> not a single fume. Now, why does this matter? First of all, people like me who have allergies to just about everything. Um, it, it is, it's far healthier. You reduce your bronchial issues, risk of infection. But then you also have the issue of what does it do to the work environment? If people are breathing fumes, they may not get sick, but it's impacting their thinking process. Excess illumination. The headaches at the end of the day come from too much light. The wrong kind of light, the wrong amount of light. This whole concept of a healthy building, MERV 13 filters are a thicker kind of filter for which you need the correct fan speeds and capacities. And they filter out viruses and bacteria. Active bipolar ionization, what is that? It's a fancy term for the careful, monitored, and regulated production of ozone, which goes into the HVAC system as the air passes through it. Lab proven to kill 99.92% of all coronaviruses in the air. So people talk about, well, let's put in ultraviolet lights. <clears throat> That's great. Ultraviolet light kills everything. It's also extraordinarily unhealthy for humans and it only kills the light it can touch. So if you have an ultraviolet light bulb and it's blocked by a piece of furniture, the air on the other side of that piece of furniture is not going to be affected. Plus, people can't be in a room with ultraviolet light. It's, it's bad for them. So it's bad for their eyes, it's bad for their skin. So when, when you put all of these different pieces together, well, okay, why does that matter? Um, if I do that in my office, uh, is that good enough? No, if you do it in your office, but they allow these off-gassing materials in other offices of the building. Modern buildings have central fan rooms from which air goes to many, many floors and into which comes the waste air from many, many floors. It's all mixed. So if you're in a new building and a new tenant moves in on the 12th floor and you're on the 18th floor, that tenant's fumes blend into the air that you get on the 18th floor. It's not even in your space. An interesting thing about our older buildings, we don't have central fan rooms. We have fan rooms on each floor. And that means that you have the air in your space. That's what gets reconditioned. Ventilation is another piece. Uh, and ventilation is very important. Ventilation is, the, is to bring in fresh air and exhaust out air. And that air goes through MERV-13 filters, gets hit with bipolar ionization, and goes out into our space, which has no off-gassing, has the correct illumination, and has a healthy environment. And what does that mean? We can work here without headaches. We can work here with reduced bronchial illnesses. 
We can, we, it filters out flu. It filters out all sorts of other bacteria that cause colds. And by the way, it happens to filter out the coronavirus. So Tony, not every tenant in the planet will be fortunate enough to live in one of your buildings um, or tenant in one of your buildings. Are there any resources? I mean, it's obviously, as you said at the beginning, a complicated subject, but if tenants demand this, um, building owners will be forced to, to, to make changes. Are there resources for tenants to um, help figure out what a building system really looks like and not just you know, have to accept at face value the answers they get from a tenant's rep when they're going to look at space? Your clients should not invest in landlords who cannot represent that they have a healthy building environment program in their work, in their management of their assets. Okay, not, oh, you know, remember, they get the one, yeah, we've got a plant wall, we've got a water feature, we have signage to talk on our plant walls and water features. So the real thing is that the, the, the tenant needs to be better informed. So what we do is we educate every prospect who comes through our space. We educate people with whom we work. The most important thing a tenant needs to do is to be well informed. Now, indoor environmental quality now has become a much bigger subject and Frankly, because of all of the attention that's been drawn to us for what we do, it's now much more understood that this concept, this trifecta, MERV-13 filters or better, active air bipolar ionization, ventilation. You know, and, and so we were able to open the Empire State Building Observatory six weeks before any, reopen it, six weeks before any other attraction in New York City. Because we finally got the attention of the governor and his commissioner of health. And they looked at it and they looked at our program and they looked at all of our data and they said, this is it. <laughs> and so what you actually will hear about now is, for instance, in New York State, they're getting out the word, these are the things you need to do. Remember, the mask is important for COVID-19. Absolutely. Stationary at your desk, if you are in an environment where the air is clean, no one is breathing nearby you, your mask really is optional. I don't wear it at my desk. I do wear it when I'm walking around the, the office. I wear it outside. Um, but I think that, no, that the bottom line is it's now getting attention. Joe Allen, as I mentioned, this professor from Harvard, has now been on. He's now been featured at the Real Estate Roundtable several times. Building owners now hear from him and our Sustainability Policy Advisory Committee, uh, of which we have many active members who are big leaders in the real estate industry from Blackstone to, to, to Boston Properties to Prologis, you name it. We've had him present to us now for more than two and a half, three years. So the landlords are beginning to learn and, and the word is getting out and the bottom line is uh, through a podcast like this, people will learn more. People will learn. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, I I could go on. I have uh, so many more questions for you, Tony, but we are running out of time. Um, I have I always ask the same question at the end of a, a podcast, so um, I'm going to ask this as a two-part question. For people listening who are motivated to help make a change, where where can they pull the string to affect behavior? And so motivation can start with owners, it can start with investors, tenants shining the light on tenants' behavior, 
government regulators, insurance companies, or lenders. Is there, are there certain, as you look at that sort of the, the web of the real estate business and the different players, are there places in particular that if you were a young person today considering your career in real estate, um, looking for a sustainability, looking for a job that would impact sustainability, a, a career path that you would consider? Okay, the, the first thing I would do is that for your investors, your clients, tenants, anybody, I would say that you go to the Urban Land Institute and look up Google Urban Land Institute Tenant Energy Optimization Program and learn about what you can do as a tenant, number one. Number two, Google Empire State Building Energy Efficiency and there you'll find everything about whole building energy efficiency retrofits. Number three, I would suggest that people take a look at the Well Health Safety Rating, right? This is done by the International Well Building Institute. Just today, we announced that the Empire State Building, this is today when we record this, September 17th, the Empire State Building is the, uh, Empire State Realty Trust, excuse me, not Empire State Building, Empire State Building Realty Trust is the first entire portfolio to be certified under the Well Health Safety Rating by the Well Building Institute, okay? So these things are out there. You can look up the Well Building Institute. Don't go to a building that doesn't have a program that equates to that, number one. Number two, for careers, stay away from the soft sciences. This is not a policy thing. So Dana Schneider, who is our SVP, Head of Energy and, and uh, Efficiency and Sustainability, and also deals with our indoor environmental quality, is an engineer out of UVA. The, Dan Egan is an, at Vornado is an engineer. Go for the science, all right? So if you want to learn and you want a career in this area, go for the science. Don't go for U.S. Green Building Council, Gresby, Green Pearls, uh, the, 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 the Green Building Council of the UK, these are all backward looking. They haven't transitioned. They make so much money by charging building owners for labels so that they can say they have it and then sell this improved building that's now lead. They'll never change. The hard stuff is done by the engineers, mechanical engineers. And these are the people these are the careers. If you want to do this, you need to be able to calculate air volumes. You need to be able to calculate energy consumption. You need to be able to calculate how different measures together work together. In, in our version 2.0 of energy efficiency retrofits, we have a list already of more than 200 products, services, and, uh, and, and, and potential improvements through which we are culling. And they all will be measured and monitored by engineers. And we'll look at how we cook them together in a cocktail to create the best possible result and say the New York State Energy Research Development Authority, this is what we suggest that you do. These are the programs which in combination will create the best result. So the number one thing I would say is this is not a soft science. It's a hard science. You have to train your engineers, most of whom are union. 
your building engineers, you have to train your, your leasing people, you have to train your operating people. It's easily achievable, it's simple stuff, it's logical steps in the logical order. Wow, well Tony, you've certainly shown a light on some very complicated um, issues, made them seem a lot simpler, given us some great resources to pursue. Um, and very much appreciate your taking the time to join us today. I hope you'll come back um, again. I, when I think about the Empire State Building, I actually, um, it's such an iconic building that anything that ever gets done with the Empire State Building it takes notice. And, um, and to some extent, I feel like I owe my career to the fact that uh, the first syndication happened uh, way back when, as you well know, with uh, Ween and Malkin and Helmsley, and uh, that was really the base, the beginning of the private equity business. So, um, you know, there's there's a lot of a lot of other things we could talk about. I'd love to do that at some well, point. Well, in time. I'll tell you, I'll tell you what we'll talk about next is we've got a lot of investment opportunity coming down in this particular area, real estate, due to the recession caused by COVID-19. We sold a lot of stock at $21 a share at one point. We started to buy our stock back at $11 a share in the low 11s. And now what we're doing is we are preparing to reinvest and to acquire property and to rework it as we do. And we'll probably come to you and say, let's raise some money to pool alongside Empire State Realty Trust's balance sheet, which is low leverage, a lot of liquidity, billion one in an undrawn upon line as far as potential additional liquidity on top of the 350 plus that we've got on our balance sheet. And, uh, and, and this is going to be a watershed moment not, uh, to take advantage of these trends. So thank you for the opportunity to participate. Hope you get some folks who can get something out of this. I'm sure we will. Tony, thanks so much. Pleasure, all best. That's all for this week's episode of Refi Radio's Innovations in Real Estate. First, I'd like to thank Tony for breaking down some of the sustainability considerations facing real estate owners and managers today. Thanks, as always, to Nancy Lachine for the discussion. We'd also like to thank Park Madison Partners for working with Refi on this podcast series. For more information on the firm, please visit their website at parkmadisonpartners.com. This episode was produced and edited by Peter Benson with help from Samantha Rowan, Rudgali Sinatis, and myself. Theme music is by Jazzhar. Thanks everyone for listening to another episode of Refi Radio in partnership with Park Madison Partners. I'm Will Moyo. Until next time.